Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And they were great. I mean, you know, we used to go to Boston to see bands from Providence too. And so I, I know that we're talking more about Providence, but I would go to the, uh, the paradise. Sure. sure. Um, I saw X there on their first tour, um, opening with mission of Burma, local band oh, opening for them. Yeah. Mission of Burma ended with break on through to the other side. <laughs> great. I am so loving. Ever. I love the specificity of your memory of shows. Like, uh, you and I share this. Like people are always laughing. Like, do you remember in the fifth song where the lights went out and he turned to the no. guy and they're like, "No, we don't remember that." But you were obviously like with me. Like it's I can not still like I wasn't set lists from show like yeah. thirty five years ago. Fifty years of music with fifty year old white guys. So sorry, that's my dog Leon. Leon, I actually hadn't penciled him in. This is great. I'll get him in the show notes. Uh, Jeff Simons is here, and we're welcoming in our New England artist in residence, Mark Netter, CEO of Electrocast Podcast Network. Um, but also, your career is just kind of all over the place, is it not? Unfortunately, yes. Professor. <laughs> Screenwriter, uh, director. Were you an were you an agent once, or did you work at an agency? No, I I I spent seventeen years in entertainment advertising, and I worked for entertainment ad agencies. And over the course of that, I did work for every major movie studio, every major broadcast network, a lot of cable networks, some tech companies like Adobe and Intel, uh, a lot of video game companies. So. That was my wow. entertainment experience. And I tailed out at Warner Brothers moving in-house for uh, just a temporary assignment to help launch DC Universe, the ill-fated OTT service that AT&T promptly killed when oh, they took yeah. over. Oh, gosh. And wow. we're about to add Rack on Tour to that list because uh, you're going <laughs> to you're gonna entertain us with stories of uh, so, New England rock and roll scene. This so, is- yeah, before all that, before that career began, you were a, uh, a lowly university student hitting Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island. Were you oh, not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I, uh, I went to school in Providence, Rhode Island, and... and- it was uh, a long time ago, so I, I think I, I'm about 10 years too old for your podcast. No, I can't imagine. <laughs> so I'll tell you, we, it was 
concert tickets were so cheap back then mm. that, you know, I would see, it wouldn't be unusual to see four minimum four acts a month. And right. they would both be on campus. It would be downtown Providence, Rhode Island. There were two, well, probably three venues where we would see stuff in Rhode Island. The uh, big one, which was, you know, not the greatest for me, you know, the, the acoustics was the Providence Civic Center. Right. And I have a couple of good stories about that. And then Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel was the incredible bar, the one that had a balcony inside of the bar. It was still very intimate. And the acts I saw there are just like legends. And there was also a place called The Living Room that yes. I went to less often, but was also considered to be a, you know, a good place to listen to new music. And so just for the, uh, the the fans listening at home, Mark actually went and found a photograph of Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel. He has it as his background on the Zoom call. So you and I both have fake backgrounds on the Zoom call. Right <laughs> um, <laughs> just rattle off top of your head, top of your head, five biggest acts you saw when you were a college student. Okay. Not favorites, just biggest. Okay, biggest. So through a friend, which I, you know, I'm from upstate New York. I was from like a small town outside of Albany called Delmar, New York. Okay. Um, but I got matched with a guy from Los Angeles and okay. from, you know, and the first day that they're there, he introduced me to somebody that he had met at the sendoff party in LA, who's from Beverly Hills, a guy named Dan Nickel, who's one of his best friends. Father was Joe Smith, the record oh. executive who signed the grateful dead yeah warner brothers um, basically was responsible for bonnie Raitt having a career twice and the second time really hitting it big um just a huge record exec and also the eagles yeah. so the eagles are touring behind <laughs> the long run album jeff gets us all seats through dan through jeff we get seats jeff didn't go to my school but his sister was a year after us at the same school and so we get seats and they're great seats at the Providence Civic Center. So it's a big, huge place, but we're pretty centered and not terribly far up. Okay. Um, and as the show is getting ready to begin, we see that they have they've, they've set up some seats on stage to the side, on stage with where the Eagles are going to play. Uh -huh. And sure enough, Jeff, his uh, sister Julie, and his father and mother come out and are sitting on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and not I, was bad. Not a, I was not a huge eagles fan at the time i've since become you know kind of like i'm hooked on several of their songs i learned how to play uh, i don't know if i can still do it but i learned how to play hotel california at least one of the chord versions on guitar okay uh, but it was a it was a great show and that was maybe the hugest i also saw the grateful dead at the providence civic center okay i will tell you that i was bored at the grateful dead show and it's I hit was and miss, a, man. So know, hit and miss those dead shows. Well, I was not a deadhead. And they were like, oh, the next show was better. And they were like, oh, did you hear the drum solo on the next show and the drum jam, whatever they called it. And then later I saw them in uh, <laughs> Glens Falls, New York, and I had a great time. Okay. So the dead redeemed themselves in my eyes then. But at Lupo's, I saw a number of acts that are huge. And at the time, they either were coming up, so they weren't huge yet. Okay. Or been huge and they were kind of not huge anymore but they would be huge again and the three that i'll mention to you are this um 
Number one would be the Pretenders, oh, the U.S. Wow. tour. So, and they still had, you know, Pete Farnden and James Honeyman Scott were still alive, right? It was early in the tour. And uh, opening for them and joining them for the encore, which was Stop Your Sobbing, was Chris Spedding, the legendary guitarist from England. Yeah. Who was basically in ducktail, you know, hairdo and leather jacket and looked like he was about to like hop on the motorcycle to leave the show, probably was. Um, so he opens and I, I was a loved Chris Spedding, you know, all the stuff was in, basically instrumental that he did. And then the pretenders came out and we had been listening to the songs. And so we knew, knew them a bit, but I can tell you like the songs that really hit hard, like precious was unbelievable. Yeah. You know, with the famous fuck off in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> before they did tattooed love boy, she said, this song is for any girl who's ever been beaten up by her boyfriend. That was, oh, that was nice for Chris, Chrissy was 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 tough. She was like wearing yeah, leather, too, edgy, leather. Edgy, edgy yeah. song intro for 1980, man. <laughs> really edgy. And then, of course, like one of my huge favorites for them is the weight, which I think is just yeah. like an outstanding. And live, we were like losing our minds. I mean, right. we're all on our feet the whole time. We're losing our minds. Um, another one on their first U.S. tour, and my buddy, who I was just mentioning earlier, Greg Stern, uh, who was the guy who I'd, I was matched with as a roommate originally from LA had become a kind of a big DJ at the school radio station. And so he got to introduce the Go-Go's Nice. and the Go-Go's come on stage and they were like, literally like the album had, I think just hit number one or was on its way to hitting number one. And, you know, it's crazy. And of course, as a young guy, you spend, you know, half the time trying to figure out which Go-Go you want to date. You know, you're looking at that. Oh, you know, I have some in half the show over here with Kathy yeah. Valentine. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's just Gina Shock. But anyways. Yeah. yeah, I know, I know. Gina's Gina's really she was, you know, everybody loves Gina. Um, <laughs> but they were amazing. I mean, they were they were, you know, they got the beat and the whole thing. We were just we were losing our minds and uh and that's was, a great example of um the the rock um promotional system wasn't caught up yet with the charts like there's no way you'd have the number one album and be playing like i have a recording from that first tour where they're playing cherry hill community college in new oh, jersey uh, and their records in the top five and they're playing like <laughs> a 900 seat basketball arena at a community college like you'd be they would nowadays as soon as you they figured out you were selling records they'd whoop they'd have you in better places. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of my spend... things I love about that moment in rock history is you, your tour wouldn't get rerouted for the first six months. And then, you know, the next time they come to town they they've jumped four arenas, you know? Well, I mean, it happened to me with, um, with Springsteen. I, I saw him in Albany um, the second night of the darkness on the edge of town tour. Ah, and he wow. hadn't toured for three years. And the guy comes out, uh, he'd just done Buffalo the night before we heard prove it all night on the radio the day before. Haven't heard uh -huh. the album yet. Uh-huh. And he comes out and they open up with Badlands and it's at the Palace Theater in Albany, which is like 2000 seats. And I'm in the sixth row. And I <laughs> actually ran down on the third song. Oh, on the third song, I ran down. Second song was Night. I can't believe I remember this. Third song was Spirits in the Night. And he comes out and he's walking outside of the stage and he slapped my hand. And then I ran back to my uh, seat. Uh, uh, but, but within two months, you could only see him in an arena. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. okay. Pretender so Go-Go's, who's your third Lupo's uh, band? Okay. James Brown. Oh, oh, oh wow. Oh, yeah. and and Lupo's. With the Fabulous Flames. And it was 
it was so he was kind of in a downturn of the career a little bit. Sure. <laughs> and he came back up again with Living in America and stuff, and he blew yeah. up all over again. But he comes out, you know, and we're all like James Brown, and we like we had loved like Night Train and the stuff from the Apollo album and all that. Um, and it was such a classic, it was like the classic rock and roll show where he doesn't come out at first, his MC comes out right with the band, and they're basically revving it up, and it's just it's phenomenal. Like we're having the greatest time. Um, and then he comes out and he's mind blowing. And I guess he was probably, I, I can't imagine he was probably was at least 45, maybe 50 at the time. But when he did that first split <laughs> all the way to the floor and pop back up again, like a, like a Jack in the box, we're losing our yeah. mind. Oh yeah. <laughs> That'll do it. And he did like a 10 minute version of, um, of a sex machine. And at oh. one point goes and takes over the piano and is playing piano. <laughs> yep. There's yeah. some of those great, I don't know if you know this, um, Tim, but James Brown put out a bunch of instrumental records. Like he put oh. out a record like every three months. I mean, he was just like material, material. And a lot of them would just be like warm up jams that they were recording to get levels right. And he'd be like, that's good enough. Put it out. But there's all these really <laughs> hilarious James Brown records where he's just, he's doing organ solos and he's just so funky and such a natural musician that they're actually pretty listenable. But he's obviously uh -huh. a guy who's like figuring out how to play the organ while he records an organ <laughs> solo. And he's like, boop, 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 boop. I mean, it's almost more percussion than actual notes, but it's actually great at the same time. <laughs> I mean, he had the big hair, you know, he was just, uh -huh. it, it was, and it is, you're right. He's like, the, he was the funkiest man alive. That's so awesome. I love and the idea. Even, I feel like I'm missing out some of the acts that I saw that were also amazing. Um, I saw the Talking Heads twice. Okay. Uh, so the first time I saw them was at college and it was in this place called Alumni Hall, uh, which is standing room only. And it was more songs about buildings and food. Their second album is out. And they're from Providence. They went to RISD right, right down there. Yeah, they met. Yeah, I was going to say, they almost all of them, right? From Except RISD. for Jerry Harrison, who was from yeah. Boston. And he was in the Modern Lovers, the original yeah. Modern Lovers. And, Ooh. you know, an integral part of that. Um, he's now so, a neighbor of mine in Mill Valley. Jerry Harrison's a... He's a and I actually there. met him up there after a Jonathan Richmond show at Sweetwater's. Okay. So Sweetwater is yeah. one of my regular, that's one of my regular stages. I play there all the time. And uh -huh. yeah, there's a, uh, there's a great little kind of homegrown scene coalescing around that spot. It's so great. The last guy I saw there was uh, Walter Trout. Do you know mm -hmm. Walter Trout? Sure. Unbelievable guitarist. Sounds like Hendrix. Fantastic. Guy now, but yeah, really great. So yeah, the heads were amazing. So it started off with Chris France was sitting in the audience having a cocktail, like sitting cross-legged on the floor and people were gathering <laughs> around, old friends and stuff. And then they do the show and it was unbelievable. And we kept saying, <laughs> and Dan goes, look at his head. It's so big. And David burned the big head. <laughs> so that was like crazy, right? And then afterwards, we're like, let's try to get backstage. So we start going backstage and they're like, oh, okay, are you here to see David? And we're like, yes. And so uh -huh. a couple of us are like, we're getting back. So if we get all the way to David Byrne, sticking his head out of the dressing room and he got, or the, the, the green room and he goes, uh, no, sorry, guys. It's not the guys I'm looking for. Sorry. Oh, uh, no. I got another good one for you. He so, stuck and then his I, big head out the door. He's got his big head. And then I saw him on the uh, Fear of Music tour, but that was downtown at, um, I forget the name of the theater. It wasn't the Orpheum, but it was a interesting theater downtown. And it was a good show because the music was good, but they were not getting along and you could tell. Oh, yeah. Ooh. That's always okay. rough. And then is the that the is that the tour before they added like Adrian Ballou and and Delette McDonald and everybody? It was like the yeah, it was Adrian like Ballou was on the tour, album, right? but I don't think he yeah. was on the tour. And then and then the best show I've ever seen in my entire life was the Stop Making Sense tour. 
yeah. in Forest yeah. Hills in New York, but that was not Providence. So it doesn't, not your main. Does so it count? How about this? How about this? <laughs> the original Ramones lineup. Oh, awesome. Wow. Am I, am I hurting you guys yet? Is that, no, is, so, was that also at Lupo's? Uh, that was at Alumni Hall as well. Okay. And, and I saw him a second time too. But the thing about the Ramones was you have to remember back then they were considered freaks. The idea that they were just two and a half minute songs and that they all sounded alike and everyone would joke about it. And you would go there and you'd have the best time because, you know, Joey would just between songs would just go, what? Yeah. <laughs> and then the next song would start. We were losing, you know, we we're having a great time. Sheen is a punk rocker, you know. Great. It's, I mean, it's like 27 songs in an hour. It was just, yeah. you know, just a cloud oh, of dust. Unbelievable. You know, and the greatest thing about the Ramones is that, you know, by the time they all started dying, they couldn't get arrested, you know, or get a concert or anything. And uh, except in Brazil. And now little kids wear their T-shirts. Like I know. Yeah. It's the single most popular yeah. rock and roll T-shirt in America. Like Don't it they is sell it at Target crazy. now? I mean, it's insane. They well, sell. I mean, don't be knocking Target. That's okay, a, sorry. Target, no, Target. Taste makers, those guys. We. So uh, <laughs> oh, wait, I got one more story about this, oh. about about the, about the Ramones. Though. So I'm there again, and my friend Dan, I'm with him again, right? And at one point, he decides to untie Dee Dee Ramone's shoe. Oh my we're really, god! We're close to the stage, so he pulls the uh, string that tied Dee Dee Ramone's the shoelace on Dee Dee Ramone's shoe, and all Dee Dee does, he playing that, you know, bass, bah, 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 bah. he looks down, he puts the shoe up on an amp, a roadie runs out, ties the shoe. No, no way. Goes back to play. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yes, you're the best. Awesome. <laughs> that is great. Well, Mark, what yeah. we have to do on our New England podcast is we have to figure out um, who is our favorite artist or who's the best artist in these, uh, these six states of ours here. So you've okay. talked a lot about some of the big names. Any um, I- any bands that were kind of small that you saw or that you had personal favorites? Absolutely. You were, the, you were there from so, what, 81 to 85? Uh, thank you. 78 to 82. I knew it was in that <laughs> ballpark. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 78 to 94, somewhere in there. So, something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. 2018. No, no, no. Well, it's a <laughs> great time to be there, though. It was wow. a great time. I tell you, the shows were cheap. There were so many good stuff. So there were a few things. So occasionally bands would come down from Boston, like Human Sexual Response. I don't know if you guys okay. knew those. Sure. They had my favorite of theirs was, well, they did Cool Jerk, which is a great version of that, which also the Go-Go's did Cool Jerk, the classic uh, cover. Yeah. By the um, Capitals, I believe, the original band that did Cool Jerk. Oh, that's correct. Absolutely correct. And the um, their big one was their two big ones were what does sex mean to me? What does sex mean to history? You know, they do this whole what does sex mean to me? Sex. They had four <laughs> lead singers, which was kind of crazy. And then I want to their big one was I want to be like Jackie Onassis. Do you know that one? I do. Yeah, I, I bought I bought that record. It was one of those records I bought that my parents just looked at and then looked at me and like they were just too afraid to ask. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be like Jackie Onassis. I want to wear a pair of dark sunglasses. Yep. Um, but I'll tell you the local band that really we were fans of at the time, and this is deep Providence stuff and they never quite made it, which sucked was the mundanes. Have you ever heard of the mundanes? No, no. Great right, name. Let me, let me describe the mundanes. So they were definitely a new wave band, skinny ties and all that. There were two, there were three guys named Jonathan in the band. There was a, lead singer named Marsha and the main guitarist Jonathan would sometimes be the lead singer there was a bassist who was a total oddball named um 
uh, named Dean. And Dean kind of went off the rails a little bit. He started wearing different, like they would basically come with like white shirts, black ties. Marsha would wear a black dress with like maybe like a, like a, or like a black pantsuit with like a white shirt or something. Okay. So they all kind of looked alike, right? They would have the skinny ties. Jonathan Gregg was the lead guitarist. Um, and then there was a keyboardist named Jonathan Linnell, which I need to get back to in a minute. Oh, so yeah. You, yeah, you'll know who he is. And then Dean went like off the rails and kind of I think got a little too into partying and one would show up like wearing like an orange jumpsuit while everybody else looked different. But we love the mundanes and they would do their big covers were down in the uh, down in the boondocks. Do you know that song? Mm-hmm. Billy Joe Royal down in yeah. the boondocks. Oh, yeah. OK, OK. Dun, 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 which we loved. They had a song called Small Town Suburban Girl. That was great. Um, or Small Town Suburban Boy. Um, there were just a bunch of really great songs. So they wrote good songs. They did good covers, but they ultimately didn't quite break through. I don't know what happened. Right. They, you know, what it was like in those days, but we would always go to see the mundanes and they really kind of typified new wave. Like they weren't punks. They weren't punky punks. Dean was trying to be a punk. I think that's what he was kind of going for. Um, ended up seem, seeming more like the tubes, you know, the way he dressed and stuff. Okay. But, um, who I also saw in Providence, but <laughs> he, um, but the uh, Jonathan Linnells was really interesting. So he was this skinny kid, the youngest. He was the keyboardist. He kind of did the Farfisa type thing on the keyboards. He moves to New York and actually did some work, uh, I think music or maybe it was office work or something. Did some some work, I think some music work for my wife's, uh, for a company my wife worked for that did corporate events and corporate videos. And he was had moved to Brooklyn and become uh partners in music i don't know if in life but definitely in music with another guy named jonathan more jonathan's and they formed the band they might be giants uh. <laughs> the rest rest of that is history you got the daily show theme and all that so i'd always yeah. see jonathan linnell and because he's such a good guy and he would talk to us after the gigs and stuff and things like that. he was the friendliest of all of them um but they used to have this thing called dial a song and I don't know if you guys ever heard of this, but sure, that's where I first heard where the replacements was on dial a song. Oh, okay. So basically yeah. back then, you know, we had in the eighties, we had phone machines in New York, you know, we didn't have, you know, phones or like cell phones or anything. So you had <laughs> phone machines and they would put a new song on their outgoing message every day. The two Jonathans every so you'd, day wow. you'd dial the number and you'd hear a new song every day. Might be a snippet, but it was right. Like sure. But still. And so not surprising that they put out all those albums. Yeah. I saw they might be giants in college and it was, uh, it was terrific because it was like rock show, but also performance art. And they had, it was kind of like a Penn and Teller were a rock band. I mean, they were hilarious and, and, uh, and their songs, those songs kicked ass. I mean, like this one great song after another, that was one of the best shows. Yeah. And, and it was just, you know, it was, it was, so they were a really fun band and, um, and they were great. I mean, you know, we used to go to Boston to see bands from Providence too. And so I, I know that we're talking more about Providence, but I would go to the, uh, the paradise. Sure. sure. Um, I saw X there on their first tour um, opening with mission of Burma local band oh, opening for them. Yeah. Mission of Burma ended with break on through to the other side. That's great. <laughs> I am so loving. Ever. I love the specificity of your memory of shows. Like, I, you and I share this. Like people are always laughing. Like, do you remember in the Fitz song where the lights went out and he turned to the guy and they're like, "No, we don't remember that." But you were obviously like with me. Like, it's I can not still like remember I wasn't set lists from show like yeah. thirty-five years ago. 
The other, the other, I will tell you that, you know, again, driving, taking the one hour bus from uh, Providence to Boston, the other best show I ever saw pretty close to that talking head show was the clash on the first U S tour at Harvard oh, theater. Now you're killing wow. me. Wow. Yeah. You're killing me. That only, I, I missed the original lineup. I caught the, um, the fake clash that Strummer and Simonon took out in 85 for the cut the crap tour. But okay. I was just too young to, to sneak well, out and see the, the original lineup. Like that well, one, that one I hurts. Saw, well, it'll hurt you. I saw them twice. I saw them on the London calling tour too. Oh, but God. that was at the Orpheum in Boston. Yeah, I have a tape of that show. That's the 16 Tons tour. They, they're just they're the yeah. best band on earth. That, that does it that does night. it have the part where they they tell the audience to stop you know um, hurting each other? Yeah, yeah. They were, they were almost <laughs> they almost stopped the show because what happened between the first one? So the first time we go to see the Clash, only the art punks are there. Second time, there's motorcycle punks. Yeah, and there's cop presence, and the 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 the. the tough crowd or getting into trouble like in front of the stage and they literally say guys we can't we'll stop playing if you don't but the first tour that first show at harvard square which doesn't exist anymore the theater was all art punks and they had this thing where they would always open with a local band then they would have a classic rock and roller that they would bring out of retirement or out of maybe just their career downswing and give them a new life the second time was lee dorsey working in a coal mine but the first one so the first one we saw it was the unprovoked retaliation tour. And <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I, I could just lay it out for you. So they opened with this band, The Rentals, who were terrible. And they opened up with, we're The Rentals and you're not. And we're like, you suck. And they sucked. And then Bo Diddley. Yeah, oh, I was going to wow. say, I thought it was Bo Diddley. They, they, there's great oh, photos my. of Bo Diddley hanging out with The Clash, looking very bemused. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you how good Bo Diddley was. And yeah. he's grinding with that box guitar. He's doing grind moves. And we're all going like, we love Bo Diddley. Like, we loved it. It was fantastic. That is great. Uh, much better than Lee Dorsey, by the way. Lee Dorsey was more of a crooner or singer. Yeah, really that, that Yes We Can record is great. But uh, yeah, I don't know against ago. Lee Dorsey, but like yeah. but Bo was a, was a cut above. And then The Clash come out and they have this huge... Uh, the backdrop is all flags of the world sewn together. And one that's kind of like just above their head says unprovoked retaliation. Oh, wow. Okay. And the first song they did was I'm so bored with the USA. <laughs> what a show. There's show. And I'll tell you one other thing that happened. It was such a great show. It was unbelievable. At one point, Mick Jones got a chance to sing his song, stay free from the second. Uh-huh. And he goes, I'll never forget this more specificity. Yeah. He says, I had a boss from Boston once. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, he was a real cunt. You know what I mean? (laughs) 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 Making friends. Pulled the rug out from under us. And the way they stood on stage, they had this wide leg stance where it really looked like they were like soldiers. And they were dressed like soldiers, kind of. Especially Paul Simonon had like, I think even had khaki on. Yeah. And they, when they would like, when Mick and Joe or Mick and, or Paul and Mick would switch sides, they would like, it was almost like a military move, the way they would move. Oh, wow. It was like, we oh. walked out of that concert. And I remember I was with a bunch of other guys from my school. Our hair was steaming in the night. <laughs> the tops of our head, steam was coming off in the night. That sounds that, like knowing that. Right there. I remember that from shows at the 930 yeah. Club in DC. Go see uh um Fugazi and you just yeah, he looked like uh you'd look like a matchstick. Yeah, so yeah, Mar- yeah, yeah. so Mark, you're you're from New York. You only spent four years in New England, right? Because after school you then go to New York. 
and that's then you've been in California. Well, that's in New York City, yeah, yeah, in California. So, so tell us is the tough question of the night. Has 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 uh, New England shaped your artistic visions? Has New England shaped, or those four years shaped how you kind of view the world and view art? Yeah, I mean, in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, you know, um, college, you know, totally shaped the way I viewed things. And I took a lot of courses. I was at Brown University and I majored in semiotics, which is the study of signs and symbols. And okay. I watched a ton of movies. I read French philosophers like Roland Barthes and Jacques Derrida. Well, I read some Jacques Derrida. I couldn't really make my way through it. Bart was much more user-friendly. Those are not and, New England uh, guys. Not New England guys. But I also think that there's a certain... Was it a lot of Derrida and uh, Situate, Tim? Is that what you're no, telling not, me? not a lot. <laughs> in Seacock, not a lot, of, uh, not a lot of Jacques Derrida fans in Seacock. But I think that what it, what it was was downtown Providence. Providence at the time was... Um, Providence at the time was, you know, kind of still being rebuilt. Yes. And... Um, the mayor, Buddy Cianci, who became the disgraced mayor and went to jail and then became mayor again. Yeah. <laughs> he actually did a lot to really help the town. Uh-huh. It was really interesting. And I think some of the architecture, the fact that it was a really arty town, you know, not only did you have RISD there, but you had RISD graduates living there. I dated someone from RISD at one point, kind of opened up this whole art world to me. You could live super cheap at the time, which I don't even know if you can anymore. So people uh, yeah. would be living in, you know, like a like an old 1940s duplex on the top floor and it would be right. you know a lot of bare wood and stuff but a little cold in the winter but great and you could have bands you know i always think that the you kind of need cheap rents for bands to be able to grow yes. in any place for yep. a music scene to happen happened in seattle happened in austin happened in athens you know it, it and then once the money comes in it becomes really harder for those bands to function it's not quite the same thing anymore Yep. So I think a lot of that aesthetic was really, you know, it's it's almost like the David Lynch Philadelphia aesthetic a little bit. Okay. You know, he went to art school in Philadelphia. And so you see that in Eraserhead a lot, you know, mm. that kind of, you know, in post-industrial. Um, and then, so, so yeah, I think that there was a lot, there was, there was a lot of art and culture going on. I took a couple of classes or took one class at RISD, maybe two, I can't remember. Um, so yeah, it definitely affected how I thought about things. And I think there was always this thing about the Providence Boston bands, you know, the Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers mm-hmm. um, was kind of a real seminal band for us. We used to listen to that first Modern Lovers record over and over and over again. Um, and then also just to be there at the time when Punk and New Wave exploded, you know, when I was a young teenager i didn't really feel like aside from like the beatles and then when i discovered the stones was like a huge thing because people would say to me what's your favorite kind of music and you know we would go to like the first concert i ever went to was renaissance in oh yeah that's <laughs> a little different yeah and my third was zappa <laughs> you know but it was like i never felt like there was really my music until punk and new wave happened wow, and then i was like so oh cool. I totally i totally get this and i really felt like i was there you know we would put on like old like someone would have like a prep school jacket and you know kind of write on it or something and i would wear that to a show or right i remember one night a couple of women put makeup on me to go to like uh see one of the shows or something like that which at the time was like ah. new york dolls did that you yeah know? <laughs> it's so the funny how um me. we talk about this on the podcast that music meeting us at, at just the right time like like right when we're ready for it suddenly it arrives on our doorstep um mm. and has its that. effect yeah well this has been awesome. 
love having you on our podcast. Before we go, just really quick in like three minutes or so, explain to Jeff your (laughs) new music club that you did in the in the 1980s in New York, just because if there is a younger person listening, this is going to blow your mind about how music was discovered back in the day. Okay, so I'll be quick about it because I know my family's kind of waiting for me for dinner over here. So um, you get to a certain point in your 20s where I don't know about you guys, maybe not. But for us, it starts to become hard to keep up with new music. You know, you just don't have the same disposable time to keep up with new music. So I had been working at a music for TV company and uh, it was my first job out of school. And I eventually started working on background music for the Olympics and being a music supervisor for Olympic broadcasts. And so I was cutting stuff on quarter inch tape. And um, so, so um, I was, I put together a couple reels and turned them into a cassette tape and sent them to some of my friends. So they decide to be inspired by this and started a tape club, which I was not even allowed to be in the first group. For some reason, they didn't invite me like assholes. <laughs> but eventually what developed was this. You would receive a package in the mail and we had people in New York. We had mem- a member in Austin, Texas. Uh, we had a member in San Francisco, a member in LA, a member, I don't know where else, one in Rhode Island and a couple of us in New York. And you would receive a package in the mail and it would could say contain seven cassette tapes and you would copy all the cassette tapes or whichever ones you wanted to you would make a xerox of the um of the label you know that they had put in there with all the songs and stuff or what i started doing is i would just drop in xeroxes so people could already have them because i'd put pictures on them and stuff and so you would have this library suddenly of like what seven times an hour and a half you know that much music to listen to and you would take out your previous tape, put in your new mix that you created, you'd write a letter to everybody and you'd send it to the next person. And the one rule that we had was that you can't, you, it was frowned upon to put more than one song by the same artist on the tape. You know how you get like a new album. You're like, Oh my God, I, I love, love both these songs. I, can't yep, I love it. You got to pick only, the only time you were allowed to do that is if you're going to do like an entire compilation. So like one guy did a Frank Sinatra one, one guy did a Rolling Stones two cassette tape version there we go and those were crazy but like you know i'd get one that was like filthy old blues songs was one of them that a guy had you know another <laughs> one with incredible reggae you know it would sometimes you know, i would tend to do eclectic kind of stuff with all different you know so many different single songs that i love they weren't necessarily the singles off the albums but they were the ones that i liked. and uh it was always such a joy to get it and what ends up killing it is eventually people just get too slow about um Moving it on. The know? turnover. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But we did I this love... for, for a number of years. And then eventually yeah, I was in a, I was in a group like that for years and years. And, and uh, it's just the greatest. Um, in fact, uh, I have a good friend who sent a cold letter to Cameron Crowe uh, after Almost Famous. And just I just love that. And by the way, here's my end of the year CD mix, like my favorite songs of the year. And he and I have been making these for each other for like 10 years. Crow not only wrote him back, but sent him his own version and added him to his list. So every year he gets oh. Cameron Crowe's ah. best songs of the year mix. It's so Love great. Love I would it. say we, for a while we tried doing CD Club, which was kind of okay. But there's something about... Oh, it's not the same, is it? It really isn't. 
because you really are mixing. You really are, even if you're not mixing, mixing, you really are sequencing the songs a certain way. You're figuring out where yep. one ends and the other begins and trying yep. to tighten that up or loosen it up or whatever. And then when you get to the point where it's like, well, I'll just send you a playlist on Spotify. It's like, where's the magic? It's I different. Know. I tell you. I tell you where the magic is on Spotify. It's on the Electrocast podcast. There network. you go. Yeah, Specifically, you. this show. Right? And our, yes, and our first our first Electrocast soundtrack album, Pod yeah. Drop Volume One. Darn right, Woo! featuring yours truly on bass. Yeah. On, uh, fantastic song. song. Fantastic awesome. song. And Happy yeah, to be there. Yeah, I just think there's something about the analog age. And I was talking to a guy who was fixing my computer in the Apple Store, a young guy, and we started uh-huh. talking. He says, "Yes, he has vinyl, and he's." He does turn off his phone at night before he goes to bed and stuff like that. And he started asking me, I'm saying like, yeah, you'd go to a town and you wanted to know where the cool people were. You had to find the cool place. You had to know which coffee shop to go to or which college to be near. Like everything was analog or you knew one guy at that town or one woman and she would tell you, open up the world to you and you'd be there. And suddenly there's a party that night at their place and there's all these cool people. Whereas if you were just to walk through the town yourself, you'd be like, where's the coolness? Yeah. And now it's all on the internet. But back then it was like, it was analog and it kind of grew out of the beat mix all the way through to when analog ended. Oh, times, they are a changing. Well, Mark Matter, <laughs> thank you so much for being our artist in residence for all of New England. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it, guys. I love talking about this stuff. And it's so uh, fun. So Jeff, fun. you're right. The memory of this stuff, these are such wonderful moments that they just don't. Well, next time we have you on, we'll do we'll each do our top five random concert memories that we uh, treasure oh, the most. So that'll fun. That'll be a good so one. So fun. Have a great holiday and safe travels tomorrow, Mark. Thanks for your time. Great holiday. Great Thanksgiving to both of you guys. Thank you. Bye, Jeff. Bye-bye. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now. On Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.